and welcome to an episode of the McGill Journal of Law and Health's podcast series, COVID Conversations. My name is Sydney Blackrochin, and I'm one of your hosts today. In this episode, Bianca Braganza and I interviewed Professor Daniel Weinstock, who is a full professor at the McGill University Faculty of Law. Professor Weinstock was appointed director of the McGill Institute for Health and Social Policy in 2013 and Catherine A. Pearson Chair in Civil Society and Public Policy in the Faculties of Law and Arts in June 2020. Professor Weinstock has been actively involved in public policy in Quebec. He was previously a member of a Ministry of Education working group on religion in public schools, and from 2003 to 2008 was the founding director of Quebec's Public Health Ethics Committee. Professor Weinstock has published many articles on a variety of topics, and currently the problem of health equity is one of his main research interests. Professor Weinstock teaches the Health Law and Ethics course at McGill University Faculty of Law, which focuses on uh, COVID-19. This is one episode in a three-part mini-series of interviews with Professor Weinstock. And in today's episode, we will be specifically discussing how to take a harm reduction approach to the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Great, so we'll get started. I'll read the first question. In an article published in August, you spoke about how, as we move into the post-confinement phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, governments will be forced to navigate more complex ethical questions than had occurred in the initial curve-flattening phase. So after examining the after-effects of the initial phase of the pandemic, what do you mean when you propose the development of a harm reduction approach when managing the pandemic in society, be it now or in the future? Okay, so... I'll, I'll, I'll start by distinguishing uh, what harm reduction is sort of opposed to, so, uh, or you know, what the contrast is uh, with harm reduction. So I guess the contrast, uh, so harm reduction is a term that actually uh, gets its uh, impetus from uh, debates about uh, drug policy. And it starts from communities of drug users and social workers who basically um, noted the um, counterproductive results, to put it mildly, of approaches to drug policy that are based on abstention, prohibition, criminalization, basically creates a problem that is much worse than the problem that it set off to solve. So I won't go into the drug policy stuff here since that's not our topic. But what's been interesting is to see that over the course of maybe the last decade or maybe 20 years, the harm reduction approach, either explicitly or implicitly, has come to uh, encompass a wider range of policy domains. Basically, people are asking themselves with respect to a wide range of policy domains, is the best way in which to approach this domain to uh, rely on the coercive enforcement capacity of the state, uh, you know, basically to aim for abstention. You know, one of the obvious areas in which the, the, the idea of harm reduction uh, has moved is the area of regulation of sex work. But um, it's moved into other domains as well, where basically the following features are where basically we have a, 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 a perhaps an initial inclination to regulate a certain kind of behavior by uh, prohibition uh, and by attempting to uh, use the law enforcement capacity of the state. Now, it might seem strange to compare, uh, say, drug use, sex work to anything to do with COVID, but what, we mean, what, what I mean is, is this. Basically, in the first phase of the pandemic, when we really didn't know what was going on. People uh, in the scientific community, in the medical community, in the public health community had a very, very um, sort of, uh, you know, not much of a sense of, uh, of, of the nature of the virus, really. It was a, a new uh, entity, part of a family of viruses that we know, but a really a new entity. And so I think there was a normal reaction 
uh, and perhaps even in retrospect, a justifiable reaction to um, try to try to deal with the virus essentially by prohibition, by prohibiting people from engaging in normal ranges of activity in order to uh, minimize uh, the potential spread. The, the idea was the only way that we can minimize the spread is by closing society down and by using the enforcement capacity of the state to do that. Now, I think that a few months on, um, we've noted a few things about that. Uh, first of all, it's very costly. You know, it, it, people have said, you know, over over the long term, you know, I don't know if you, we remember that in the in the first instance, the idea was that, was that we were going to be shutting down Quebec. The initial um, expectation was for something like three weeks, right? So, uh, you know, that seems sort of quaint and naive as we look at it almost eight months down the road and looking at another you know, God knows how many months. And so, you know, there's something quite, you know, understandable and not necessarily problematic about saying, look, we're all going to take a deep breath and we're going to minimize our contacts to just about as, as few as we can for three weeks and then we'll see where we are. So obviously that didn't happen. The, uh, the lockdown uh, lasted a lot longer. And I think that with time, we were able to see the costs that it occasioned. So costs, economic costs that we've talked about a lot, uh, but other costs as well, which I think are perhaps even uh, more important to keep tabs on. First of all, costs in terms of how differentially equipped people in society are to deal with the consequences of a lockdown. There are people uh, like myself who live in very comfortable circumstances, who are able to lock down, you know, without it being too much of a burden. People who find themselves in much more straightened circumstances, people who find themselves socioeconomically dis disadvantaged and living in cramped quarters that have inadequate, you know, that, that have inadequate services of various kinds, including inadequate what we're using right now, uh, internet services, you know, are going to be uh, in a much more difficult position to deal with the consequences of a long-term a long-term lockdown. There are also consequences in terms of other aspects of health. You know, we're going to talk about this later on, I think, but, you know, as lockdowns go beyond days and weeks to stretch into months and who knows, uh, you know, uh, maybe even years, the mental health consequences need to be reckoned with, as well as other co health consequences. We know that the effect of, of COVID has been to... Uh, both because of the policies that have been adopted at the level of hospitals, but also because of people's own decision-making. You know, other health problems have been delayed, deferred surgeries, uh, treatments, uh, diagnostic uh, tests have been delayed and deferred because of the focus on COVID. Um, and so this has to be taken into account as, as well. We also realize, uh, you know, that there is a limited capacity on the part of the state to actually enforce the prohibition, right? The state could tell us, look, uh, you know, we'd rather that you didn't, you know, have people in your house or, you know, have people over uh, for a drink. It's not as if the state, especially a liberal democratic state like ours, can actually uh, effectively enforce the prohibition if people aren't on board. So you take all those uh, aspects of the situation and you uh, extend them in time, right, where we're now dealing with a virus that will probably have several waves instead of just one big one. And then, uh, you know, uh, I remember uh, one of the ways in which the future had been described at the beginning was, well, we'll have this first big wave and then we'll have a series of wavelets. Uh, well, you know, the second wave looks like a lot more of a, of a wave than a wavelet. Uh, the numbers of people infected seem to be just as high or uh, higher than they were uh, before. Death rates are not quite as bad as they were, but we're still in the early phases of the... But what we realize now is that this is a sort of a long-term process. And so all of those costs, which may have been um, acceptable for a very, very short period of time, now really sort of... Uh, 
you know, we really have to reckon with them in deciding how to approach the second and perhaps subsequent waves of the virus. And so a harm reduction approach suggests itself, which, which says, look, you know, we're not going to, we're going to, we're going to minimize or we're going to use a little bit more, what's the word I'm looking for? We're going to be a little bit more um, moderate in our use of pure prohibition and pure restriction. What we're going to do is we're going to provide people with tools with which to be agents of their own security and safety, rather than uh, sort of just imposing upon them that they stay at home, not do anything, and and sort of let the state take care of their security through prohibition. So it's it's a subtle thing. Obviously, the situation that we're in now is somewhere between uh, sort of a harm reduction approach, where we would tell people, look, you know, wear masks, wash your hands, you know, socially distance. But and we're going to try to see whether for the next two or three years we could keep uh, rates of infection at an acceptable level while giving people the tools to, you know, lead their, lead their, lead lives, you know, uh, that have, you know, we, we can't expect people over two or three years that they just sort of restrict themselves to staying at home. We're somewhere between that and a, and a lockdown approach, right? So there are a lot of type of businesses that are, that are, that are now closed, gyms, uh, cinemas, theaters, et cetera. But on the other hand, uh, and the government and uh, public health officials are being very clear about this, we're not going back to a lockdown phase because I think that some of the intuition, some of the ideas, some of the observations that motivate a harm reduction approach have made themselves clear even to uh, people in government. Look, we can't come into your homes in order to see whether you have two or three people uh, you know, that aren't supposed to be there in the, in the home. You know, we can't go back to a phase in which we literally just hunkered down and sheltered in place. This is something that that really um, sort of has has mental health effects that that are that are unacceptable. It uh, reinforces rather than um, it reinforces the inequalities and patterns of advantage and disadvantage that are already present in society. So we have to try something different. We have to try to again, uh, you know, adopt something that approaches a harm reduction uh, approach to a greater degree, which is to um, rely more on tools that allow people to do things whilst they're trying to be safe, rather than preventing them from doing things altogether, like in the first phase. So um, I think that we're probably going to be uh, seeing this sort of modulations of this harm reduction approach for the foreseeable future, you know, until the point at which we can say that the, that the pandemic is, is behind us. Which you know the, the horizon is 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 extremely unclear. We are all sort of waiting breathlessly to see whether a vaccine will be produced. But even a vaccine is not you know something that will necessarily put an end to the pandemic situation, to the situation of moderate to high risk that we find ourselves in for a long period of time. First of all, because it's going to take months. Uh, for a vaccine to be rolled out to populations as a whole. And second of all, because uh, we're still not sure what the uh, degree and length of immunity that will be uh, achieved by a vaccine is going to be. So a uh, long-winded answer, which I'm going to uh, sort of wrap up now, which is to say that if we think about pandemic, the pandemic, the situation that we're in as being one that's going to extend over months and possibly years, a harm reduction approach, which minimizes on prohibition, minimizes on, uh, you know, sort of calls to abstinence, abstain from doing anything that might bring you into contact uh, with other people. A, a harm reduction approach is going to suggest itself more and more as uh, the pandemic wears on. 
Thank you for tuning into the McGill Journal of Law and Health's podcast series, COVID Conversations. This episode was a conversation with Professor Daniel Weinstock, and it is one episode in a three-part series with Professor Weinstock, and so I hope you'll tune in to those episodes. But until then, goodbye for now. 